the people of God should be status blind. Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. Jesus restored the dignity of people who were at the bottom of the social pecking order. Women, the poor, children, foreigners, even lepers. Without subverting authority, and that's important to note, the Lord upheld the intrinsic value of each person. This teaching has implications for us as his followers. Paul walks us through those in Colossians chapter 3. Jim's sermon is called, The People of God Are Disciplined. You brought your Bible with you this morning, I trust. Open it, please, to the book of Colossians. And from a rather familiar passage, I hope this morning we can see some marvelous truth. The passage I'm talking about is Colossians chapter 3. And in this passage, God sets forth sanctity of life. Let's read the verses together. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. Wives, here's a personal word for you. Submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, a personal word for us. Love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give to your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In just a few moments as we study this passage, I'd like to move us first beyond the obvious in the passage, beyond the wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, master. I'd like us to see the foundation, which is the buttress under which and which supports all of these special responsibilities attitudes, and actions. That foundation is very clearly set forth in those verses, verses 22 down through 24. Some very special things that are true. And because these things are true, therefore, these actions should flow out of our lives. Well, then let's pick up the theme First of all, note where we've been. We are the people of God. That's what our neighbors expect when they come to visit us. We call ourselves a church. We carry our Bibles. We profess to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. All of this series of messages flows out of a couple of experiences the Lord gave to Tricene and me some months ago when we were sitting in a restaurant on a Sunday morning 
watching people come into the restaurant and doing our best to determine by what we saw how people behave. We were doing our best to decide who was Christian and who was not Christian. Now, we didn't know these people personally. We were out-of-towners. We were in their turf watching them respond and interact. And they were not putting on the dog. They had no reason at all to act differently than they normally would because they had no sense of being judged or evaluated. So we had the perfect position to ask ourselves, what do Christians do that identify them as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? And as we sat there at the table watching families and individuals act and interact, we were soon working off of a base, a criteria that we knew was biblical. And that led to this whole series of messages. As our neighbors come to see us in our services together, whether it's the worship service, whether it's all the guys taking their sons to the hockey game here in a couple of days, whatever they see us doing, when they see Christians together, what do they have the right to expect? And when we're in the restaurant, when we're on the job, when we're in the shop, when we're at the office, what should make our lives distinctively different? And there's a whole series of things we've been talking about we're talking about the, the people of God are kind and long-suffering. They are gracious and forgiving. They are spirit-energized. They are scripturally centered. They are confessing and confident. They are caring and courageous. They are joyful and hopeful. They are peaceful and content. They are contemporary. They are dependent. All of these things come right out of these verses here in Colossians. And we should be taking these things to our own hearts and asking as individuals and as members of this community of believing people, are we truly behaving as the people of God? And if we're not, the passage before us this morning says we'll have to answer to God for that. Note the verses, chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and especially those verses related to the slave and the master, especially those verses, because it's in that context Paul chooses to give us these, these master principles that are at the heart of making life sacred, and therefore relationships very important. He begins there, verse 22, Slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with thy service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. If you mark in your Bible, mark that one. It's appropriate to ask you this morning, do you fear God? One of the great signs of the end times and the days of apostasy is that there is no fear of God before men's eyes. God is not a part of conversation. God's will is not part of the decision process. God's word is not significant in our homes and habits. There is no fear of God. Everything is reduced to human cultural 
social standards. We should fear God. There are reasons to fear him. He is not a cuddly little bear. He's not a puppet that we can manage. He is not, he is not controlled by our thoughts or our wishes, and he never asks our opinion when he does things. Received a book over the holidays. I've been reading it. It's called Worshiping the Wild One, W-I-L-D, Wild One. And the author is seeking to find ways to express his discovery of this awesomeness of God, that God is not on the end of my string, and I cannot manage him, and that God is free in the whole of his universe, and while he is consistent to his own character, he is to be feared. We like to talk about God in cuddly terms. We like to reduce him to the man upstairs or to my good buddy, God. God will not be reduced to that which is politically correct. And God will not be managed by our own desires. Earlier in this same chapter, the apostle reminds us that God is a God of wrath. You see it in verse 6? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves also walked when you lived in them. What's he saying? He's telling us that there is certain behavior that deserves the wrath of God. And while God chooses not to express his wrath immediately when sin rears its ugly head and challenges his authority, the wrath of God is nonetheless coming. That's a good reason to fear God. It's a good reason to mend my ways, knowing that God will judge. So the first pillar, then, in understanding and applying the biblical statements of the sanctity of life is fearing God, being concerned about what God thinks and how God evaluates our lives. The next one is in verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. The second reason life is sacred and I should be cautious is because God will reward my actions. When I make a decision, when I choose a course of action, I set in motion things that are going to come back to face me in my future. God will see that I face the consequences of my choices. Those who counsel young ladies and not so young ladies when they're dealing with a, an unplanned pregnancy, perhaps an unwanted pregnancy, are trying to tell that young woman that under the pressure of this moment, you may make a decision 
that you will regret the rest of your life. Don't do that. What are they saying? They're saying that choices have consequences and choices have predictable consequences because we make these choices in an arena where God's in charge. God will reward according to our choices. The, the, the other side of that, or the continuing side of that is, that he who does wrong, verse 25, will be repaid for what he has done. There is justice. There is equity. We are not in a moral freefall. God himself will judge and payment will be made. That payment comes, according to this passage, without respect of persons, or as my text says in verse 25, there is no partiality. That is, there's no way to bribe God. There's no way to escape the cold justice of his righteousness. Position, pleading, all of those things will not work in God's court. There will be no shady legal deals that will set you free from God's impending righteousness and judgment. And the president and the pauper, the master and the slave, the husband and the wife, the parents and the children, all will stand before God without benefit of partiality. God will cut through all of those temporary positions and deal with the morality of the action, the choice, the attitude that's involved. Well, you see, slavery is only temporary. The master is a master according to the flesh. That is, that's a fleshly, human, temporary relationship. The slave is not going to stay slave forever. And the master will not be a master forever. The father will not forever be the father. And the wife will not be forever married to this husband. The children will not remain children. These roles that Paul points out or picks out or selects are roles of assignment, roles of choice, and yet they are roles that are temporary, roles that are passing. And all of those roles have no bearing in influencing God to shave the judgment, the judgment he makes about the morality or rightness of our choice. What Paul's saying is that people are strategically and spiritually important whatever role they come in, whatever relationship they may have, they have dignity, they have value, they have worth because they are experiencing God's life and in this case they're experiencing God's redemption. For you see, this passage is not written to the neighbor who does not know God. This quality of life, this way of living, won't be found 
absent the redemptive grace of God. This, this expectation, this ideal, is for the people of God, the people of God who have a relationship with God, who are experiencing the peace of God, who have been born into the family of God, who honor the word of God and have it settled in their hearts, these are people who are distinct and different. And in their relationships, sanctity of life rules. Those who are disadvantaged will not always be disadvantaged. There's a day coming when that disadvantage will be removed from them forever. Those who are children will not remain children long. They will grow up and soon they will be the ones who will be parenting you, caring for your needs, making vital decisions that affect your comfort, your choices, and your quality of life. A wife is not a wife forever. She is only a wife during this part of her life here. Death could very easily make her a widow. And husband, you're not a husband forever. The angels in heaven do not marry your given marriage, and this relationship that's so vital and important on earth will pass when we come into the presence of God, when we are resurrected, when we live forever with him. So the apostle wants us to understand that the roles that we play and the disadvantages that we experience and the sometimes difficult things that happen to us in this life do not take from us, do not rob us, do not destroy the sanctity of life. I am to respect my wife and to love her to do all I can to minister to her, to help her, to assist her, to become the very best person she can be. I am not to abuse the privilege of fatherly authority. I'm to temper my responses to my children. I'm to discipline them graciously, kindly, firmly, yes, where necessary, but tenderly. And I will answer to God for how I treat my wife and how I discipline my children. If I abuse the authority in that position, God will measure judgment to me. The point of the whole passage, as Paul is teaching, is that God is concerned about our most domestic and most human relationships, and he wants us to see that he values every life in whatever form that life may now be. That those forms, those stations, those positions, and those relationships are temporary. And that the responsibilities and advantages that those positions give to some are balanced by the weight of value God places on those who are disadvantaged. 
some of the finest commentators on this passage have suggested that in here, in this passage, where Paul talks about the slaves and the masters, and in the companion epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians, which was written at the same time and sent to these two churches that were close enough that Paul tells them to read these letters reciprocally in both churches, that his emphasis here may be in part because of Onesimus. He is sending Onesimus back with this letter. Onesimus, you remember, was a slave. And according to Philemon, he was a slave that had done some bad things in his relationship with his master. He had sought to escape punishment and had raced off to Rome. And there, in prison in Rome, apparently, he ran into Paul. And there in that Roman prison, Onesimus, a slave, became a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes the letter to Philemon and sends Onesimus back with this letter to the church at Colossae, saying, now it's your responsibility, Philemon, to receive Onesimus as a slave who is your brother. And you are to treat him, even though he is a slave, as you would treat me. Paul was not trying to upset the social schedules. Paul was rather trumping the social cruelties with a higher law. Philemon, Onesimus is your brother. And when the two of you come to church, you both sit on the same pew equal. You in the church, in the body of Christ, have a relationship where slave and master doesn't matter. Where color of skin doesn't matter. Where age and sex doesn't matter that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and are part of his body, we're called to a relationship with each other that offsets and modifies every other relationship we have, even slave and master. We hold these truths to be self-evident, wrote America's founders, that all men are created equal. That truth has been far from evident to most people throughout history. Maybe it's only obvious to those whose eyes have been opened by the teachings of Jesus. It's the then what that Jim has been addressing in part one of his sermon, The People of God Are Disciplined. If you'd like to have the message on CD, we'll get that to you for a gift of $7 or more. And you can have the entire group of 17 sermons from Paul's letter to the Colossians. The People of God is the title, and we're asking for a gift of $59 or more for the set. There is power in prayer. Right Start wouldn't have made it these five and a half decades without the prayers of people like you. Nor would we be here today without financial assistance from people like you. Please listen to the Lord if he speaks to you about helping us in one of those ways. You can mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085, USA. Or call 1-800-984-2313. That's 800-984-2313. And visit the website, rightstartradio.org. Right from the homepage, you'll have access to lots of audio resources. 
You'll be able to play previous radio programs, play or download the complete sermons, and we give you a link to subscribe to Right Start as a daily podcast on iTunes. There's a convenient and secure way to donate online and more at rightstartradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. If we're going to treat people differently, better, we'll have to see them differently. And not only that, we'll have to view life differently. Please join us on Tuesday when we'll hear the rest of this sermon on the next Right Start.